I'm currently standing in the Povonsky Military Cemetery here in Warsaw, in what is called the Katyn Valley. Now, when you think of a valley, you think of some sort of beautiful mountain or highland scene, you know, with some sort of romantic gorge with a river streaming down through it, where you can take a walk and simply forget about the travails of everyday life. However, nothing further could be from the truth. The word katin for Poles has a singular meaning and describes one of the most horrendous acts of genocide. Katyn is the name of a village which is now currently in Russia, not far from Smolensk. In the 1930s, the forests around Katyn were frequented by members of the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, much like the Gestapo or the SS in Nazi Germany. Apart from taking in the air and going for forest walks, it was here that the functionaries of the Soviet political police would bury hundreds upon thousands of bodies killed by them as part of Stalin's cleansing. In the spring of 1940, in a word by Katyn, 4,400 Polish officers, prisoners of war, are murdered. One after another, they are shot in the back of the head. Without any investigations, without any charges brought against them, without any trial or sentence, everything that happened went against conventional law. The Caton Valley, where I'm now walking, finds itself in the heart of the military cemetery here in Warsaw. It is a symbolic place, commemorating those Polish officers who were killed by the NKVD. In that fateful spring of 1940, some 22,000 prisoners of war were killed. Among them was supposed to be Jankarski. the plane roaring down out of control and then crashing into silence. A state of war has existed. It would be still more foolish to lose heart and courage. Thousands of people like me perished. Some of us survived. I am one of those. Untold stories from the secret state. Message from the Holocaust, Part 2 Under Soviet captivity, Karski quickly sees that Polish officers are worsely treated than your regular soldiers. The Polish leaders sleep in wooden bunks, in barns, while the privates are actually kept in a brick church. Karski rips off his officer's insignia, stating that he is actually a lieutenant. He also changes his shoes and says that he's just a regular worker and not actually a member of the intelligentsia, a member of the Polish diplomacy. Germany and Russia decide to trade on Polish prisoners of war, among them Private Karski. However, Karski does not stay put in German captivity for long. 
he manages to escape from a prisoner transport. Karski arrives in Warsaw. The view struck me, he reminisces after the war, adding that the scale of destruction was far greater than he ever could have imagined. The Germans introduce new laws. Death sentences are meted out for any form of insubordination. Factories and businesses are consolidated under centralized management. The Nazi occupiers decide on the price of goods and their distribution. Poles are cut off from the rest of the world. It is impossible to leave, and the ownership of radios is strictly forbidden. Hunger becomes commonplace, and fear is omnipresent. Most probably thanks to his brother's connections as a pre-war police officer, Karski manages to make contact with the Polish underground. He receives his first mission, to pass through enemy territory to France, he used to meet with the Prime Minister of the Polish government in exile, General Władysław Sikorski, and ask for further instructions for the underground state. Actually, he was not a courier. He was an emissary. Maciej Kosłowski, a friend of Karski's and former Polish ambassador to the United States. Because courier was a person who was just taking package, transporting it through the frontier, delivering, and that's it. And he was an emissary because he was gathering information and he wants to repeat this information to interlocutors after crossing the border. For instance, his last mission was information given to him by different political parties to be transmitted to members of those parties. And sometimes, you know, this information were contradictory. And he had to memorize it, and impartially repeat them. That was the idea of his um, mission. Poland was in a very special uh, position because, you know, when he was on the first mission, France was still at war with Germany, so of course there were no emissaries needed. On the other hand, other European countries were allied with Hitler, so <laughs> there was no emissary. So the Poland was the only occupied country, well, later Norway, which had its government in London, uh, first in Paris, and it was a communication between the legal government in exile and underground in Poland. I'm here on the Dolina Gonshenitsova, so the Caterpillar Valley here in Zakopane, nestled in the Tatra Mountains. Now, the Tatras are the highest mountains in Poland. They are absolutely beautiful. They're not as high as the Alps. The peaks here only range from between 2,000 to 2,500. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Amazing for hiking, but more importantly for us, it was actually a window on the world uh, during World War II. Zakopane already had a reputation for itself going back to the 19th century for, as a place where people would come to relax, take in the mountain air, go hiking, skiing. And during the Second World War, many different trails 
crisscrossed over the Tatras into Slovakia and then over into what was then free Europe, so Europe not occupied by the Nazis. I'm here with Maciej Krupa, a journalist and also a mountain expedition leader. Hello. When we think about Jan Karski and how he came across the Tatra Mountains, tourists can go um, along the bottom edges of these mountains through valleys, but once you get higher, it actually gets pretty treacherous. Did Karski have a hard time crossing the Tatras? I mean, are they a hard range to cross? In winter time, yes, it can be very, very serious expedition. Although they have relatively good conditions, but still, to climb a pass called Zavrat, uh, well over 2,000 meters, in a very steep terrain, very steep kind of gully, with uh, heavy skis on your shoulder, it's not an easy task. Then they have to ski down to five Polish lakes valley. Uh, not on prepared piste, it was just, you know, skiing off-piste. It's also not very easy. I was going to say, I mean, Karski probably wouldn't have taken a regular trail, right? He would have gone through, you know, he would have cut through the forest. He would have cut through the forest and the mountains on his own right, right? Yes, he was with a local guide who did it uh, professionally and for money. So he checked uh, Karski the day before uh, his ability to ski in a difficult terrain and then took him through two high passes, Zavrat I mentioned, and another pass called Gwatka, to avoid possible border guards or any other difficulties. They slept in the mountains in a, in a little shelter under the rock and then skied down the Chicha, silent valley, to the first village on the Slovakian side. When we think about the Tatras during the Second World War, they formed a very natural border, but at the same time, were they a kind of window on the world? Was it one of the best places to get out of Poland from? Of course, because it's uh, much more difficult to um, guard the border in the mountains. So, although difficult in technical terms, it was a window to the world, and the local community of uh, mountain guides, sportsmen, skiers. It was a natural group who formed the group of uh, official couriers who were leading people through the mountains, who were smuggling documents, money, whatever was necessary to provide uh, the uh, connection between the Polish government in exile and the headquarters of the Polish underground army in occupied Poland. And how did such a journey look like? I mean, when you're in, let's say, in uh, Warsaw, you have some documents you need to take to London, you come down here to Zakopane, and then in order to get to England, where to next from here? What did the journey look like? Usually they have some collaborators on the Slovakian side, and they could spend a night there or have a lift by occasional car or sledges or anything else. So they have to cross Slovakia and then to cross another border between Slovakia and Hungary. Hungary had, in the beginning of the war, a very special status. It was a kind of semi-independent status. So when they get to Hungary, to Budapest, they were free. In Budapest, there was a post of Polish underground army help them uh, to 
travel further to the west and first they traveled to France when there was at the beginning of the war uh, Polish um, government in exile then to London they were taking different routes through the western Europe sometimes they uh, board on ship in Italy going round uh, through the Mediterranean and then to Britain uh, sometimes they took trains uh, different means of, of transport but that was not as difficult as that first stage crossing the mountains. Crossing the mountains, indeed. So in the winter of 1940, there is a lot of activity here in the, in the Tatras. And for the first time, possibly ever, the resort actually brings a lot of German tourists here. We have Wehrmacht soldiers in the various sanatoria here, you know, taking in the waters, taking in the air. There are also volunteers coming here to try and join the fight against the Nazis, and there are also couriers carrying all kinds of documents and cash which are going to be used for bribes. You know, among them is Jan Karski as well. It was a risky business because Zakopane was officially the closed zone, only designated as a resort for German soldiers to recover after fights on different fronts in, in Europe. All Poles, uh, not residents of Zakopane, needed a special permit to get here. So some of them left uh, train in Poronin, the closest village, or even jump off before the station to get here, to get to the town without that special document. So it was risky. And of course, there was plenty of German soldiers here. Of course, they were recovering, so they were not on duty here, but German presence, Nazi presence here was uh, uh, overwhelming, definitely. And of course, the post of Gestapo here in Zakopane was also very active. And their headquarters in the villa called Palace. Many people, not only from Zakopane in this area, but also some other areas uh, lost their life. So um, it wasn't a safe place or, or resort as we can imagine that. And how did Karski do? Did he manage to get across the mountains without too many problems? Yes, because everything was organized. Uh, his brother organized for him that guide who was the former ski instructor before the war. He did it for money. But he was very well prepared, so he checked his ability to ski, then led him through the mountains and uh, contacted him with a Slovak partner on the other side who helped him to uh, cross the border to uh, Hungary. So that first mission uh, in both ways was uh, relatively safe and without any serious difficulties or, or problems. But you're talking about the fact that there were so many Germans here, this big Nazi presence, there's a Gestapo headquarters, so much evil, yet here we're surrounded by such beauty and such you know, peaceful surroundings. So it's hard to think that anything bad could be going on. Yet at the same time, there's this stillness that you don't really know what's going to happen next. In December 1939, I was sent to France. In April 1940, I was then sent back to Poland. 
At the beginning of June, I was sent once again to France, but this time I didn't make it to Paris. I was arrested. He was captured by the Gestapo. Andrew Nagorski, historian, author and editor at Newsweek International. He had to resist incredible torture. First, he was held and a young Gestapo officer tried to basically win him over as an informant. When Rikarski absolutely refused to cooperate, they began torturing him, beating him. And he said the worst thing was not the physical pain, but the fear that he might betray someone, just uh, that he might break. And at that point, he actually tried to commit suicide. He managed to get a razor and cut his wrist. They found him with blood on, on his wrist, and then he was sent to a hospital. And that's probably what saved him. He would say what an idiot he was, that he did not know how to cut his veins properly. Eva Wierzyńska, one of Jan Karski's closest friends. You know that he was attempting suicide because he was afraid that he might betray the secrets of the underground state. He knew everything. He knew everybody. He was not a simple courier. He was afraid that he might break down uh, under torture and not control what he was doing, what he was saying. So that is why he thought it would be best if he commits suicide. He did not cut his veins vertically, but uh, horizontally, which didn't work quite as well. So he did not um, die as he was intending to, but he was, res- uh, he was rescued by the uh, Gestapo, transferred to the hospital, and from there he was rescued by the Polish underground. Uh, incredible story. At a certain point, at one night, they was told at midnight, come to this window, wait for the signal, and we'll tell you what to do. And he's told to get out, you know, climb out this window. People there, a couple people waiting for him, and they managed to smuggle him out. And this is the underground operation. I mean, the, the, the organization of these efforts is extraordinary. Here's another moment that I, I thought, again, which totally contradicts Karski's kind of message, oh, this was all very boring, ordinary in life. He he said, you know, when I was finally, my escorts, the underground people who managed to get me out, delivered me to the next point where people were going to take over my care, I thanked them. And one of them told me, well, don't thank me because I had two sets of orders. One was to free you if we can, but if we can't, we'd have to kill you. That was just the way it was. He had, he knew too much. Krakow. I'm standing on Adolf Hitler Platz. And that was the name given to the largest open market square in Europe by the Nazis in the Second World War. And Krakow was not Krakow. It was Krakow the capital, the seat of Nazi German-occupied Poland. One in five residents of this city is German. And the grand plans of the Third Reich mean that in the future, this city is going to be a hotbed of Nazism and of racial purity. 
It is here that Karski finds shelter after his amazing escape from the Gestapo prison. It was here that Karski found shelter after his courageous escape from the Gestapo prison. But then again, he was just jumping from one frying pan into another. You hear the plane roaring down out of control and then crashing into silence. A state of war has existed. It would be still more foolish to lose heart and courage Thousands of people like me perished. Some of us survived. I am one of those. In this episode, we used archive materials from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, the Polish National Digital Archive, the Claude Lanzmann Shoah Collection, and the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. This podcast is made by Free Range Productions for the Big Histories Foundation. This production of the first 10-episode series of Untold Stories from the Secret State is financed by the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs as part of the Public Diplomacy 2020, a new dimension competition. More information about the series can be found at www.secretstate.pl.